So, um, great to have you all here for the last talk today. Um, the talk is Doing Right by Sources Done Right. I guess every one of you read and heard a thing or two in the past years about whistleblowers, and so you all also know that in order for whistleblowers to achieve their goals, namely to bring their stories out, they rely on journalists, and it's these journalists' responsibility to make sure that these sources get protection, which is a very complex matter, but we're hugely honored to have here tonight Sarah Harrison and Grace North, who are experts in this field, and they're gonna to explain to us how to do that, how to not fuck up, and how to protect these sources. So please do me a favor and give a big round of applause for Sarah Harrison and Grace North. Enjoy. I've got it on. There we go. <laughs> Um, so yes, yeah, so my name is Sarah Harrison. Uh, I'm a journalist at WikiLeaks, but I'm also currently the acting director of an organization called the Courage Foundation. Um, this was launched last year as an international organization to protect truth tellers. Um, Courage acts as a first line defense in the highest risk cases where others can't or won't act due to the risks and dangers and difficulties in association with helping those who've risked so much for our right to know. We currently run the Edward Snowden and Jeremy Hammond's defense funds um, and their support websites, along with other projects that we've started and are beginning more next year. We'll be speaking about the protections for truth tellers by the media and public, the issues where and how improvement can happen. And I'm here today with Grace, who heads the Jeremy Hammond's defense committee and who'll be giving a more in-depth example of some of the protection issues that Jeremy had to deal with. So there's currently a lot of discussion uh, generally at the moment around online drop boxes and uh, how this handover point in the process uh, can be solved online. Um, however, if we actually look at the past, this is in fact just one area and has often been that of the least issue. So if we think of the big cases in the last year, it wasn't the handover point of the documents that actually caused the legal problems for the following source, alleged sources. Chelsea Manning, was identified after a conversation she had had with a US government informant that posted post the alleged action. Another alleged source, Jeremy Hammond, um, was caught after an infiltrator was working with the US government, turned him in. Edward Snowden decided to go public himself and then was left in Hong Kong by The Guardian. The journalist, the journalist that Jessalyn Raddick had contacted didn't redact her name from the documents leading to the pursuit of her by US courts. John Kiriakou had agreements broken by journalists, which then assisted the US governments in persecuting him. All these examples have led to truth-tellers being involved in long, dehabilitating legal cases, large prison sentences, and indictments, yet not one was the document handover point itself that caused the main issue. And yet the other parts of the full source protection process are not being much discussed. Total source protection is a complex topic, can often depend very much on the situation where the source is in terms of jur jurisdiction, job, their technical capabilities, the journalist's technical capabilities, the type, classification, format, size of material they wish to disclose, who the adversary is, and also the political environment for sources in general. There are five areas uh, specifically that I just want to go through uh, briefly for each one that you should be thinking about if you're dealing with source protection issues at all. So there's the initial contact period, the handover point, publishing the documents and articles, continuing contact, and then aftercare. 
So for initial contact, a lot of people think that sources just sort of anonymously want to hand over documents and they'll just drop something somewhere. But actually, and if anyone saw um, Laura and uh, Julia's talk yesterday, it was very clear that often sources are cultivated uh, by journalists. Now this happens a lot for official government US sources. Now these can often uh, be uh, give, give quotes to journalists anonymously. I think with the, the general hope that if they've done it anonymously and it's somehow secret, this will get some more impetus for what's basically a government talking point. Um, in these cases, there are, are no repercussions for the media journalist or source because it's just the official government sliding their points out in other ways. Of course, when exactly the same thing happens for the public's right to know, with an unauthorized government source, the repercussions are dire. So this initial contact with sources or potential sources, when that starts, there are a number of operational security issues to take into account. I know others have had a lot of more detailed uh, talks about this, so I'll just brush over them quickly. So your phones, whether you're being followed, emails and other online data trails. There are various methods to mitigate these depending on the circumstances and threat model. So that includes obviously encryption, burner phones set up, not just to, to not tie them to your identity, but you can also specifically obfuscate the identity that they're tied to, pre-assigning and moving meeting places that you set up in person, and then a big one, cover. If you can create a lot of other cover, whether it's traffic online or uh, cover meetings, so for example, next CCC would be a great place to arrange to meet your sources. Um, when dealing with source protection, um, it's very important that you split up the investigative resources of the opponent. So the more different types of cover, the more trails that you're setting that they have to follow, whether these by be financial, data, um, or otherwise. The larger the anonymity pool, anonymity pool that you're creating, the better. Um, often when speaking to sources, journalists want to get a lot of information from them. Um, this slide uh, outlines uh, the AP standards um, for uh, what it means for on the record, off the record, background and deep background. And as you can see, they have various um, supposed ethical um, obligations of what they, what they print and what they don't. There are many cases where journalists don't actually describe these properly to sources. The impetus is always on the source for them to try and understand what what, whether what they're saying will be printed and used. And as you can actually see here, the AP's, um, this is taken straight from the AP's website, their official policy is to try as vigorously as possible to try and force the source to put on the record information that they wanted to keep off the record in the first place. Um, I think that when you're dealing with sources who are taking huge risks and have potentially dire consequences, bullying them into doing something that, where you don't necessarily understand their situation and the risks they're facing isn't, isn't actually the, the ethical way to go. The burden in these cases really should be on the journalist to be ethical and to explain to the source precisely what they're doing. Similarly, a journalist and media organization should be very upfront about what protections and assistance will or won't be given. Will the journalist fight subpoenas and risk jail themselves to protect the source? Will the media organization pay all legal, legal bills? There have been cases where um, media organizations tell the source that they will, and then, and then they renege on this promise. And they think this is actually worse than if the source were to understand that these, these did not exist in the first place. And it's not just the contact between the journalist and the source that can cause issues. There's um, an example of John Kiriakou and Matthew Cole, who's a former ABC News producer. Um, 
Cole wrote to Kiriakou, who is now in jail for exposing CIA torture programs. When Cole was writing a book about a CIA rendition in Italy, he wrote to Kiriakou asking if Kiriakou knew the name of the CIA officer involved. There was a bit of an email exchange and eventually Kiriakou said um, that yes, he had remembered it. Cole then sent the name of the officer that he'd been given to a defense investigator at Guantanamo Bay. This name ended up in a classified court filing, caught the attention of the FBI, and became the final piece of evidence that leaked the links to Kiriakou. So as you can see, there are many examples of just while you're having um, just contact with your, with your source of the sorts of mistakes that can be made. So the handover point of documents is the area that has gotten the most attention in the last year. A number of news organizations are setting up online drop boxes, and whilst it's great, of course, they only work if the operational security on both sides of the source and the journalist are performed precisely. <coughs> as a general rule, in drop boxes, the source should have to think about as little as possible. There should be as little burden on the source as possible. The impetus really should be on the journalist, and having worked with quite a few journalists, I'm aware of how much training and understanding they need to be able to do this properly. The other issue I find with the current state where so much importance is placed on the Dropbox itself is that in many of these cases, this just won't work. A lot rely on Tor, which is unavailable in some parts of the world or people's workplaces. Document sets might be too big, uh, too large to hand over. If you note in Laura's film, I'm sure many of you saw last night, um, they were using R-Sync and then in-person handovers. So whilst, of course, the handover is an important part in the journalistic process, it should be noted that all other parts of the process have just as much uh, security, technical, and operational issues that can arise. And nor does it actually work in all conditions of the point it's trying to solve either. So then we move on to publishing. The next part of the sourcing process is, of course, publishing. Now, the obvious point here is do not publish identifying information about the source, and certainly not their name. However, apparently not all journalists can even stick to that. Michael Isakoff, a Newsweek reporter, published emails he received from a source, Jesselyn Raddick, regarding a case of a captured suspected Taliban member in Afghanistan and whether he had a right to an attorney or not. Jesselyn at the time worked in the ethics department of the, ethics department of the DOJ. And she was contacted and confirmed that yes, he did have a right to an attorney. Under duress, though, back in Afghanistan, John Walker Lind, the detainee, waived his right, although his parents back in the US had already secured, secured him a lawyer. As the case progressed, Raddock was aware that Lind's legal rights had been violated and started to take action, initially internally. When this resulted in retribution at work and files going missing about the case, she went to a reporter with her emails. The result was that he didn't take the name out of her emails, they were printed, ended up in court cases, she lost her job, almost got disbarred, and a tough legal case began for her. Another important point in source protection at the publishing stage is the language that the journalists use when writing articles. One of WikiLeaks's main policies is never ever talk about sourcing. Never ever confirm or deny a person or people might be your source. The issue here is it's a slippery slope. Even if the source wants to become public and you can associate certain documents with them, what if someone else from that organization comes forward afterwards with similar documents but they want to remain anonymous? Now you have to publish articles that, that would potentially be for the person, from the person you were previously naming, 
but now you're not naming that person as a source. So if you don't want to attribute them, you're now waving a big red flag to the government or whoever the documents came from saying, hi, we've got someone else that you should start a large manhunt for. Any organization source protection policies in this way should be severed, severed totally from the publication process. So if you do wish to write about an alleged source, you should distance it from other stories. Don't start writing about speculations, attributions, tweeting about who or who might not be sources. Essentially, when it comes to sourcing and publishing, just shut the fuck up. Any and all language... <laughs> <laughs> any and all language you use when publishing that is in any way related to sources is extremely important, mainly for your source. Always use alleged. Use disclosed versus leak. We often use, for example, WikiLeaks obtained. You take the impetus away from the source. These have onward implications for any potential court cases for you and your sources. And when the government is out to get someone, they will go through every tweet, every article, and every word to see if they can use it in any way to bolster their case. If you're in any doubt at all, check with a lawyer. And not necessarily a media lawyer. They're there to protect the media against liable, etc. They're not specifically trained to protect whistleblowers. There are whistleblower lawyers around the world who'd be happy to talk about those issues. But if you still have any doubts at all, shut the fuck up. The only time you should talk about a source is if you're lying. And lastly, within the publishing elements, there are the documents themselves, clearing anything at all that could identify or lead to the identification of a source. This is a very varied process that depends on the situation. It's impossible to go through them all here, so just a brief peek. Metadata, of course, is a reasonably well-known, of course, in these circles as well, understood issue. But there can also be watermarking within the text itself. Um, so when you're publishing the documents, a big thing that you should do in your process is to look at actually the organization itself and the workflow within them. Who definitely has access to exactly what copy of the documents? Who are they distributed to? Who officially gets it? But what other sysadmins, receptionists, what other people are they allowed to distribute to? And this will give you an understanding of exactly the type of, uh, exactly the copy of the document, how many people have access to that, and therefore what your anonymity pool is. So for example, contracts at large companies, whilst they're being sent around like a merger contract, for example, for example, and worked on, they'll often contain tiny word or formatting changes, a comma is added, double space is put somewhere, so that a potential source could be identified. So if you're dealing with documents like these, the media should be going through a process to standardize and remove any possible inconsistencies that would potentially lead to a certain source, adding plausible deniability. So other examples as well in, in um, uh, prepping documents for publication for source protection, a couple of examples from WikiLeaks. Uh, we had um, a, a disclosure that came to us from a secret society at MIT, and we were publishing the ritual manual of it. Um, we discovered that the sources had taken photos of the manual of each page. This is how they'd got it. And each manual had a number um, on the front page, uh, which was the chapter of the society that it was. It was an identifying number for that chapter. Um, so the source had edited this out using Photoshop, and they'd done that very well, and that was all great. But what we noticed is it was, it was double-sided print. And when you turned over to the, onto the other side, if you didn't... In a, 
very good image enhancement, you could still see a shadow of the next, from the next page of the number coming through. So that was really checking very, very closely each page of the document. There was another example where the legal filing number used on the document um, uh, was on the document. Uh, this was something that um, was... Uh, uh, was allegedly from a lawyer who got the docs through discovery, but they actually came through. Uh, our alleged source was another alleged source. There was a middleman. And this actually often happens that, that sources will reach out via, or you'll get documents that come via someone else. So if your source says, oh, yes, that's, that's fine, it may be fine for them, but is it fine for the original source? So you have to be independent when you're assessing this as well. Uh, moving on to my next category, um, continuing uh, contact and relations. This is a pretty standard thing in the world of journalism that they will want to uh, maintain contact with the source. Maybe they want to ask questions about the documents or they want to, to try and get uh, more documents. Here it's actually even more crucial that there's tight operational security um, because just because the journalist story is out doesn't mean the potential legal issues for the source are over. In fact, I would say they've increased. It's one of the more sensitive times because, of course, the government or organization is now alerted that there's a leak. They're going to be on the hunt. Moreover, journalists can be subpoenaed as they are the eyewitness to the crime. So for everyone involved at this time, security is crucial. So then speaking of subpoenas, um, just a little tidbit for CCC. WikiLeaks will be doing more on this uh, next year. But I got a really nice Christmas present from Google. Um, of course, uh, no one at WikiLeaks is uh, using Google services for anything sensitive, but um, uh, I had uh, a long time ago uh, done something in the past. And as part of the US case against uh, Julian, the US grand jury that's going there, Kristen, who is our spokesperson, myself and other people relating to Julian and WikiLeaks, received literally the day before Christmas... Oh, that was my other... I'm forgetting my slides, sorry. Um, received this lovely document uh, here. Um, so this is a now unsealed search warrant um, that was uh, sent uh, by the Google department. Uh, it's related to the uh, espionage case um, against Julian in the United States. The 793G is the legal, is the legal code for that. Um, so as we can see, this, this case against Julian is still, still continuing and they, they continue to spread the net. Um, so aside from uh, subpoenas that th they can try and get you with, uh, this doesn't just apply for, for the media who the source went to, the security that you need to have at this point. Ethical journalism practice should be protecting all whistleblowers. So Scott Shane from the, from the New York Times was writing an article on John Kiriakou. He had not been his source, um, but he was writing, writing on him. Um, and when he when Kiriakou agreed to the interview, part of the conditions he put was that um, Shane would run the um, uh, quotes by Kiriakou's legal team, just in case the phrase in Kiriakou had used was um, potentially legally damaging for him. Shane actually ended up reneging um, on this promise, and some of the wording uh, was then used in Kiriakou's sentencing case against him, assisting the prosecution in getting him an overbearing sentence. Journalists should definitely be aware that at this point, it's hugely stressful and a lonely time for whistleblowers. Many have had their lives, families, and jobs all destroyed. They're under a lot of pressure. Some will reach out to others for comfort. This can have disastrous consequences. A well-known case of this is, of course, Chelsea Manning, who reached out and placed trust in someone she thought was a priest and therefore had obligations of confidentiality. 
Of course, Lamo had lied and instead turned Manning into the authorities and went to his mates Paulson at Wired, who wrote an article cherry-picking the alleged chat logs in a way that was very damaging for Manning. Now, of course, I can appreciate that in some instances, this, for the source themselves, it's, it's risky uh, if the media have a lot of contact. But there are organizations, there's actually a gentleman in the uh, audience here, Gavin McFadgen, um, who runs an organization that Courage works with in the UK called Whistler, that deals with this precise issue uh, as part of aftercare um, for for whistleblowers. So journalists, for example, could refer them to them and anyone dealing with source protection or whistleblowing should be aware of these organizations around the world. And then finally, in the aftercare stage, there's something that annoys me hugely. And this is the excuse by journalists that they can't assist their alleged source for fears of their, fears of their stories becoming biased. I've seen too many cases of what I refer to as asset stripping and then the journalists just leave. My stance is, if you're a good journalist, your stories will speak for themselves or someone else at the organization could write it. It doesn't mean that you can't write positive articles about them, as so many media alleged for so long regarding Manning. It doesn't mean you can't assist them when they're stuck in a foreign land and leave them there, as The Guardian did with Snowden. It doesn't mean you can't write to the judge for leniency, as most Western media did in the case of Jeremy Hammond, alleged Stratford whistleblower. And here is Grace to tell us more about Hammond's case. Hi. Uh, okay, so... Um for those of you that might not know who Jeremy Hammond is, he was a member of Anonymous who uh, hacked Stratford, stands for Strategic Forecasting Inc., which is a private firm that does, it's a private intelligence firm. Anybody with the money can hire them to investigate whoever they want, and Stratford did a lot. Um, Stratford was hired by the U.S. government, by uh, corporations such as Coca-Cola, Dow Chemical, to spy on activists that they basically didn't agree with, didn't like what they were saying. Um, and this all came out when Jeremy uh, hacked their email systems and allegedly released them, <laughs> allegedly released them to WikiLeaks. Um, so, and, uh, yeah, so that, and one of the major one of the major ways that he was caught was by an FBI informant named Sabu, real name Hector Monsegur, who is going to figure in a little bit later, but um, that was one of the main ways that he was caught. Another hacker was turned state witness against him, which is another issue that is... You keep talking. Say what you were having things. Um... Well, first of all, one of the first things that I really wanted to talk about was what is a whistleblower? What is, what is, what is a truth teller? What are our ideas around that? Um, obviously, we, we think of somebody who may be within a system, who has information, who then comes forward with it. But I honestly think that we really need to expand our definition of what a whistleblower is, what a truth teller is. Um, for example, I very strongly believe that the PayPal 14 who were 14 individuals that were arrested as part of a DDoS attack against PayPal for blockading the funding of WikiLeaks, I very strongly believe that they should also be considered and given the same protection and honor as other truth tellers, as other whistleblowers, because they saw an injustice that was occurring, the PayPal refusal to process donations from WikiLeaks, and they did something about it. They called attention to it, which is what I think one of the main uh, 
main acts of what a whistleblower does. They call it, they call attention to something. So I think that honestly we need to expand that definition to include people that have been arrested, maybe not for doing the traditional, quote, as we think of truth-telling activities. But it's really crucial because what happens in these cases is when somebody comes forward with something, they are punished with these these draconian laws with these outrageous sentences, which then causes future truth tellers to maybe not want to come forward. So protecting your truth tellers and protecting your whistleblowers is an incredibly important thing as we were learning because really these truth tellers that are coming forward are being prosecuted so harshly. And if that flow of information is going to continue, they need to know that they are going to be protected. That the media and that people around them will not leave them high and dry in Hong Kong or um, whatever the case may be. I think it's just to interrupt, I think it's interesting as well that in most countries there's no um, uh, public interest offense. They can't say whether they're inside or outside of an organization, well, I was doing this for the public good, I've caused greater, greater good by my supposedly illegal action than if I hadn't done anything. And I think that this is something that should be pushed for change as well on, on that point. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. Um, so uh, another point that I wanted to make is that uh, after, sort of aftercare, that's sort of my specialty. Jeremy asked me to take over his defense fund in, June of June or July of 2013 and aftercare is so important these people have sacrificed everything to you know bring us this in this in this information and it's important that we show our respect both as people as journalists who write these articles who then build their career off off of it I believe that uh, respect needs to be shown to the source um, after and that's a very important part of aftercare, especially for those that are identified and are arrested. Because, you know, John John Kiriakou should not have to fundraise on the internet to save his house because he's not there. You know, that should be that should be something that is taken care of by both, you know, the media that help that were his contact people, and by the people that have benefited from the information that he shared. Um, a strong ideal that Jeremy holds and that I hold as well is is mutual aid and sol and solidarity. And part of that means you don't leave your source behind. You don't leave somebody who has sacrificed everything. You don't leave them behind. Yeah, it was interesting when we worked on for the um, with the Hammond case. Um, WikiLeaks uh, put together when it came to the sentencing time, or uh, we tried to put together as large a um, signatory letter of all the media organisations, and we'd worked with a lot on the Stratfor files, and we tried to get as many of them to sign just to ask for leniency in the sentencing case. And what was very interesting was a complete um, break between uh, how the global South and how the West reacted to this. So the West either completely ignored the email in general. There were two very good journalists who I will just name, uh, Stefania Morizzi from Italy and uh, John Goetz here in Germany, that actually were willing to put their name to it. And other than that, we were either entirely ignored or they refused. When it came to the Global South, we had media organizations going, well, we'll sign and I'll get so-and-so in Argentina to sign. So people that had never like worked on even the Hammond documents when we, when we were first uh, making, making partnerships. Um, so, 
um, this was quite an interesting phenomenon that I think that the West has become so bad at, and you can see that in that example where you're looking at the difference between how the Western media are acting to the global South, that it doesn't have to, to be like that. And I completely agree. Do you want to talk just a bit about Jeremy at the moment? Sure, Jeremy. Um, Jeremy is currently serving a 10-year federal prison sentence for his role in the Stratford and another hacks that were all politically motivated. Um, he's doing pretty well. Last time we talked was Christmas Eve. He says hello to everybody. Um, and he, right now, he's. It's prison is just a daily grind that you have to live every single day. And it's especially hard for people who may be anti-authoritarian, like Jeremy is, maybe you've noticed, um, who have spent their whole life trying to dismantle that system to then become completely controlled by it. So aftercare by the general public really helps. Things like writing letters, donating so that he has money in his commissary, sending books, things like that, super important. And can you just explain so they understand a bit about how he keeps going in and out of shoe and the... Yes, that's been an ongoing issue. Uh, documents, it, it honestly started, <laughs> oddly enough, when documents were dropped by Anonymous, um, that were the unredacted LULSEC warrants. And I got frantic calls from lawyers at 9.30 at night um, <laughs> saying the government is very upset with Jeremy for this. And well, well why, why are they upset with Jeremy? He's in jail, he didn't release them. Well, they think that they gave, you know, they think that he gave it to them. So there are very real consequences for a mishandled, you know, a very, very real consequences for mishandled in information, especially when that person has already been identified and may be in jail. Um, the government has punished Jeremy with overly harsh uh, punishments for minor infractions. He keeps, he's gone in and out of shoe, which is a solitary confinement, uh, stand for the segregated housing unit. He's gone in and out of there more times than I can count. Um, and every time they put him in, the, he loses what's called his good time. He earns good time off uh, of his sentence for every month that there are no infractions. Well, if the staff decides to bump up his infraction level based on what he did, his good time is gone. Like I just checked a couple weeks ago and found out that his release date had been pushed back a month um, because of a situation that happened where he was overly punished for something that should be his absolute right to do. Um, and his release date got pushed back a month, which means he's not gonna be out of, he's gonna have to spend another month in prison on top of the already unjust 10 years he will have spent. So, um, mishandled documents and mishandled information and how you publish your sources really does matter and it really does impact your source very strongly. Um, especially, like I said, if they've already been identified and they have already have that attention put on them. And I think it's interesting in the case of you just described, even though he's in prison already, it's still having an impact on how people in the outside world are dealing with information that he is seen to be linked to by the government, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can tell everybody what happened. He uh, wrote a letter of leniency for Barrett Brown, the journalist 
who was charged urgently with publishing, or I'm sorry, linking to the information that had been published from Stratford. Um, uh, Barrett Brown is, was due to be sentenced in the beginning of December for this. And Jeremy wrote a letter of leniency, as many had done for Jeremy. He wrote a letter of leniency for Barrett Brown, and he sent it to me to give to Barrett Brown's federal judge. And he was written up for circumventing mail monitoring procedures. And he had his email privileges. I still cannot email him. He got his email privileges take, taken away for a month, a month or a month and a half. Um, so I mean, normally things that would not cause people to look twice, he gets slammed for every single time. And that's part of the government re retaliating against him for continuing to speak out. Um, so it's these sorts of cases that we, um, uh, we set up uh, courage for. Um, courage is uh, working with Grace um, and running um, Jeremy Hammond's defense fund. It was born out of um, when we worked to get Edward Snowden asylum, we realized that actually um, in these sorts of um, high-risk cases, um, there are very few uh, organizations, in fact, well, in that case, there were no other organizations that can or would um, assist him that could act swiftly and securely. So Courage was uh, founded by uh, three trustees, Gavin, who I mentioned before, who's from the Center for Investigative Journalism in London and Whistler, um, he's here. Um, Barbara Bukowska, who's from uh, legal director at Article 19 in London, and then uh, Julian Assange, who's the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks. Um, and we worked to, to get Snowden Asylum, and he then instigated setting up courage, uh, even in the midst of all of his own legal issues uh, with the US grand jury, as we've just seen, uh, still continuing against him. Um, so we began with Snowden's Defense Fund and protections for Snowden. Um, we've grown. We now have Hammond as a beneficiary. We run these specific defense funds along with their support websites, um, including the revelations um, uh, that have been disclosed. We proud to say actually have the largest collection of Snowden documents uh, because no one else was putting them all in one place. Um, um, we also this year launched a new fund for sources under investigation. Um, this is actually, uh, we call it the Known Unknowns Fund, which is our little in-joke to Rumsfeld's quote. Um, and this is specifically for um, sources at the point when they are being investigated. They're an alleged source. Um, they haven't necessarily been, um, uh, they haven't been charged. They're not necessarily identified publicly. So to get public money to pay for legal advice is pretty much impossible for them to raise public donations, but yet they need legal advice. They have people knocking on their doors and raiding them. Um, so um, we were actually, um, we, this fund, there's already one person that is actually um, uh, needing its support at the moment, um, and I'm sure there will be more. Um, so that's one of the other projects that we uh, set up this, this year. And one of the big things that we've done, we've worked from the beginning, is to systematize these sorts of processes and these support, um, to set up the website, to set up the uh, defense fund. Um, and for Snowden, it was sort of almost a test case for us for how we did it, what the legal loopholes, et cetera, were. Um, we then, of course, set it up again for Hammond. Um, and we now, within a day, can set up a legal defense fund and a support website for anyone else that comes forward. 
Um, this is important to be able to, to move fast um, because the story is pretty much set within the first week of the public perception. Um, so this fast-moving defense is really quite crucial. Um, we have some plans for this coming year. Uh, we're going to be offering advice for media and journalists about how, how to operate securely, what to think about. Um, we've also started a network of specialized lawyers for um, legal advice and logistical assistance um, to help sources around the world, whether this is legal advice or escaping from Hong Kong to get asylum. Um, so... Um, yeah, so we're continuing our work into next year with these, these are more projects. Um, so all of your help is, uh, is very much uh, appreciated in that. Um, in these ways and more, we're aiming to internationally give complete protections for truth tellers in the hardest cases and show them that someone will take risks for them when others can't or won't. And the purpose is to maximize the amount of truth in, about the society we live in and the public record, and to do so whilst fostering civil courage. We want to set a new standard in the protections of truth-tellers by the journalists and the public alike. And I hope that the public generally can start to hold those that don't give sources the fullest protections to account, and that here, in the technical community, we can start to think of more ways to assist in this complete protection, not just the drop-over point, so that we that will help all of us in our right to know by helping those that so bravely come forward and fight for us. So thank you. And then we're taking questions if anyone questions. Yeah, thank you so much Sarah and Grace. Thanks for the inspiring talk. So, um, luckily we have plenty of time for questions and answers. Our inspiring speakers said that they will take questions. We have six microphones here. One, two, three, four, six. Please just line up there and make yourself noted if you have a question. I think the guy on microphone three was first. Please state your question. Well, I'll try. So, uh, not as much a question, but I like to point out something. Can so, you get a little closer to the mic? Please? So you are in Hamburg, Germany, and the problem is not to protect the security of press or journalists, because we had a case where the journalist was a covered police lady. So these problems occur at another point here. I'm really sorry, but I didn't quite understand what you... I think because you started far away from the point. There's a different issue in Germany because yeah, of the police Yeah, woman? we have... You know, media is protected by law. But we had a case in Hamburg where a covered police person was the media. And now... Ah, ah, okay. Okay, so she was undercover pretending to be media. Not, not, not pretending to be media, undercover in media. Okay. To try and find sources by them coming to her because they thought she was media. Is that the point? Uh, no, the problem is I want to protect the source. Mm. So I ha the source has to rely on media journalists working properly protecting you against those guys you are disclosing. So, if those guys you work for officially 
disclosing the secrets are the same guys we are telling the secrets to, so what? Um, well, yeah, that sounds like a terrible situation. I mean, were they working for a media organization? Yeah. So I think that the public should have called for that media organization to be shut down. Nope, uh, not media organization. It was an undercover cop in media. So the police put something into media. All right, well, since I got the feeling that there is no question developing out of the statement, thank you so much for the statement. And let's just hope that our speakers today are journalists, as they claimed, and not as... I hope this is not what you were insinuating, all right? So, thanks. Um, next question, microphone one, please. And get close to the mic. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I think um, it's a very important point uh, that you were making. I'm very glad to hear it from also from the de development of the foundation last year. I, I think it's important to, like... Um, like you were mentioning, the, the wording, the, the language, and the... like. Verbal obsec of, of, of journalism yeah. in that context. I do have a question um, for for Grace. What you were mentioning about um, PayPal, I do assume that you have something like um, a working definition or something for, for whistleblowers. If you compare it, like uh, yeah, the situation in Germany, um, again the wording is super negative. You do use like the word whistleblower, but you also use denunciant, informant. So it's like extremely negative. So if you say we're protecting specific cases, and if you said like, what's the benefit in declaring like the PayPal guys as as whistleblowers? So you said like that's a protection as as such. I'm just interested in um, like what's your working definition from from the foundation point of view, and what's what's the actual practical? How do you protect? people by just saying, that's a whistleblower by our definition. You know what I mean? The truth telling. Well, I think that um, the definition of a whistleblower or a truth teller can be someone who sees someone who is doing wrong or sees an or, an organization is doing wrong and through their actions, through their politically mi minded actions, do some, does something to bring attention to that, whether it's uh, drop documents, whether it's DDoS a website, which I very strongly feel should be covered under the First Amendment as a form of free speech. Um, <laughs> uh, whether it's DDoSing a website, whether it's dropping emails, um, they're doing something, they're, they're doing an action that brings attention to this great political in, injustice. And I believe that should be our definition of what a whistleblower is, what a truth teller is, because that's what they're doing. They are incurring significant personal risk and they are telling the truth, which is what is needed right now. I strong, we need a complete revolution in how we think about our government and how we relate to our government. And revolutions are never easy and they're never clean and they're never messy. Laws will get broken and laws will have to get broken in order to call injustice to those laws. So I believe that we need to appreciate the truth tellers that we have because they have sacrificed their everything to bring us their, their truth and, and our truth. And the truth is what's gonna enable us to fight back against those that have taken our freedom, against those that invade our privacy. They're the ones that are gonna change the world. They're the ones that are going to change the world and they deserve respect as such.
Thank you so much. <laughs> Next question from the internet. Hi, so I, I have a question from Twitter to Grace North. Um, is it possible to ask for presidential grace for Jeremy Hammond? And if it's possible, how can the public contribute to that? Like a petition, petition or campaign? I believe it would be possible to ask for a presidential pardon for him. Right now, I don't know of any specific campaign that anybody's planning right now, but that is definitely a possibility. And what the public, if that campaign came to fruition, it would probably be in a petition form. Um, the government, the people, the most important thing is obviously sharing that. Uh, signing it and not just you know sort of tweeting it out but sort of going to certain people saying hey have you signed this to make sure that yes you can get specific yes I will sign this yes I I will sign this and trust me if that happens I will raise holy hell to get my friend pardoned and home so there you'll know if it happens all right thank you next question for microphone four hey thanks um so from what I understand, you, you have these funds going to uh, help people uh, to have money, uh, to help them have legal support and stuff. But what we've seen from WikiLeaks is that sometimes there is money which is not accessible. How do you make sure that the money is accessible in the time needed and, and it keeps being accessible when it's needed? Are you talking about like our banking blockade, like how the donations yes. were stopped? Okay, so this is one of the things that, which is, because this was a big um, concern with the setting up the Snowden Defense Fund about this, and we actually had an almost um, pre-test case for that. Um, with Julian's defense fund. Um, and we actually have found kind of um, a, a, quite a robust way in which to do this, which has not yet been, and Julian has not yet been shut down and Julian's his, that continued through the blockade. Um, and uh, so that still stands. So that was sort of the base of the um, system that we then started. We then had to make it a faster process. Um, but that was the base of the type of system and the type of structure that we used to set up Snowdens and we will for, for the other whistleblowers because this was exactly what was on the main front of our mind and anybody else at the time that wanted to help Snowden but because of our experience um, in this we were, we were able to actually set up the sort of logistical bank account when, when nobody else could. Uh, okay, but this apparently it seems to be that it has to remain a secret or would you be able to talk more about that? Um, so it's partly the sort of the people, it's a mixture of sort of the people that are involved and the fact that they can't be backed down, um, um, which, I mean, when it came to the, the banking blockade, there were uh, a number of organizations that um, were helping us in this. There was um, one that was absolutely wonderful in it, Wow, uh, Holland Stiftung, who are here as well, um, that actually stood by us, um, although they had their um, charity um, number, what do you call it? status taken away here in Germany. Um, but yes, so, but then there were other people that didn't stand up against this, and so our donation um, routes were, were blockaded in a lot of senses. So one thing is sort of is the people that are involved, and the second is the, the legal structure around it. Um, and so one of the, the structures that we've used is a trust um, in the UK of all places, um, but the trust has some quite, it's a long thing to go into here, but I can explain about it later if you want. But a trust has some, um, some things that uh, make it reasonably robust for for these sorts of situations. All right, thanks. Next question from Mike Free. Hi. Oh. Hi. Uh, thank you for the talk, of course. But uh, you mentioned something about source protection uh, that kind of piqued my interest around uh, 
Going through the actual source material and the documents to ensure that there's nothing uh, personally identifiable, you mentioned something about double spacing and commas. How do you protect against maybe, if we're talking about high stakes here, uh, documents that are purposely uh, manipulated with, say, comma splices or special punctuation that the uh, adversary would be able to uh, attribute 100% back to a source, at what point do you say, maybe we can't even post screenshots of the source material? Where do you draw that line or how do you even assume that might come into play? So one of the things that you do in these cases, you essentially, basically what you're aiming for is um, uh, a, a high enough level of plausible deniability and creating a large enough anonymity pool. So you're basically fudging what they can specifically relate back in the sense of these things. So you would go through and you do things like you standardize it in certain ways. So this actually means going and and taking away paragraph breaks or, or these sorts of things. Um, uh, because, yeah, the, as I say, the main thing is to ensure that it can't be specifically led back to that one potential source. So if you go through and do things like standardizing through the whole document, etc., then you take the, you're adding, starting to add more and more plausible deniability to it and taking away the sp any specific things that could have been put in to, to um, pinpoint a certain source. So as a thought example, or yeah, thought experiment, if Snowden decides to remain anonymous, should they have posted the screenshots of the PowerPoint presentations or should it have been standardized to 12 point Times New Roman completely stripped of its uh, original format? Well, this is where I was saying it depends on like the workflow, et cetera, within an organization. So um, if you have, if the, if the documents, if there's like a large repository, which a lot of people, a number of people are coming, uh, accessing the documents through, you have a large enough anonymity pool from your baseline. So therefore, you're not, it's, it's a, this sort of thing, that particular example tends to happen a lot more um, with a smaller um, number of people that the document is being spread to within the, the work, within the people it's meant to go to. Um, that uh, generally if it's within the same organization, they don't do it so much. It generally tends to happen. So for example, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership things that um, documents that we published, where you're looking from, um, it's although it's within a uh, reasonably small agreement, it's going across country and then within those countries, different advisors, etc., are looking at it and they want to know maybe which country or which particular person it's come from. So in the Snowden documents, it's kind of, it's quite a different case because of the of who had access to those documents. So it's really is kind of a case-by-case -case example. They were just very specific. I'm not saying you now have to worry about every comma and every document. Um, this was a very sort of specific type of case just to give an example of the things one should be thinking about when you're working with this documents. Who has access to it? How does the organization operate? It's not just a fact of removing so, you know, the headers from the email or the metadata from the documents. All right, thank you. Thank you. For everybody entering the room right now, I would like to point out that we're in the middle of a very interesting Q&A, so please remain super silent. Thank you. Next question for microphone one. <clears throat> thank you very much for this very important talk. And thank you, Grace, for your support of Jeremy Hammond. Um, I was wondering, um, for me, it seems that he's a very classical political prisoner and I was wondering if the traditional or classical organizations for human rights, like Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International, are also engaged in supporting him or Barrett no. Brown. Can uh, you elaborate a little bit on this and why not and so on? Thank you. 
Um, I believe that sometimes for those organizations, they have to rem sort of sometimes draw a political line, what they're allowed, what they're quote allowed to support, what, what they're willing to support, which I think is uh, sad because um, it, your ethics should, you know, People, de people deserve support, and that should reach across ethical, I, I'm not saying it should reach across ethical lines, but there are certain things that we can all agree on that, you know, that support is necessary and needed, and it should not, you know, reflect badly on a news or organization, say, if they sign a letter saying this person deserves leniency, but often in, at least in America, it often does look bad for them. I don't know if I'm right, but um, I'm kind of assuming it has something to do with the fact that they are Western political prisoners. Is it, can it be that there is a difference if they would be from some, I don't know, banana republic or axis <laughs> of evil, then they could get more support, but in I fact, because I they know. are from, well, U the US? I don't know. I mean, uh, human rights organizations have done some amazing work within the United States within the past several years about think issues such as solitary confinement. Um, but as far as supporting specific prisoners... Um, I would agree with what you're saying when it comes yeah. to specific prisoners. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't... Issues without faces are generally far easier to, to, su to support. When it comes to specific people, I think the, the um, alliances that organizations think they're then having, if it's the US government that has cracked down on someone and they're a US government-based organization, and often these organizations get their funding from the US government, so the last thing they want to do is say, hey, we want to support that guy that, you know, last week you were trying to kill. So um, <laughs> I think that completely has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. We got another question from the internet. Yes, one more from the IOC chat. How about developing low-budget methods for anonymous collection of secrets, like eavesdropping tools for everyone together, with tutorials, how to deploy them, and an SOP for the whole process? Or is there already something like this? Can you repeat, can you, can you repeat it? How about developing low-budget methods for anonymous collection of secrets, like eavesdropping tools for everyone together with tutorials, how to deploy them and a SOP for the whole process? Or is there already something like this? Gathering um, I think sort of, I mean, it depends how it, I don't know if anything, as I understand it, this is for, for collecting yes, things. Yes, collection. Rather than people specifically secrets. going and putting them. Yeah. Um, I don't know of anything that exists specifically like that. I think that it, would pro it probably sounds like it would be quite a good um, obfuscating tool. So if someone makes, wants to make a good one of those, that sounds uh, quite good, but I don't know of anything, anything like that. I think any, um, there's always with these sorts of solutions, I think that there's a balance between um, uh, investing enough time, um, etc., to make uh, a particular solution good enough, and then also having enough other solutions so that you can create enough uh, cover possibilities and traffic to try and obfuscate exactly exactly what is being used. So there's always a balance when looking at this, but I don't know anything of exactly what was said there. Thank you. Newscomers, please be silent. New question from Mike One. Uh, hi. Uh, thank you for everything. Uh, you, you have said that uh, um, everybody's help is welcomed. But uh, I find that uh, sometimes uh, in helping in a more concrete way 
can be complicated. I mean, uh, uh, donations are very useful, of course, but sometimes there is also uh, the, feel the feeling of the duty to do something more. So I'd like to ask uh, if uh, there are other ways for young people who are not journalists, who are not lawyers, who are not uh, anything else to help. Um, yeah, I mean, we're looking for things like translators, etc., as well for the site. We actually have, um, on, if you go to the website, you can, um, you can state that you want to volunteer there. So I can't remember the, the exact uh, email now, but it's on the website. So you could always sign up for that if you want to, to help. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Question from Mike too? Okay, uh, thanks guys for your work, of course, and, and for coming here to, to speak about it. Um, just a question for Sarah. You, you, you gave a lot of examples, you know, really bad examples of journalists making mistakes, and um, it almost seems that you're suggesting that like, don't speak to them, um, because it's, you know, it can be dangerous. I, I was wondering, are you, did you ever consider blacklisting certain you know, news organizations, and how does Every that... You live with them as well. Thinking I mean. we might start one of those on courage. We could have like the good pile and the bad <laughs> pile, and then sources can go. And which one shall I go to? I was thinking we might do that. It could it could be useful for. Do sources, you think it'd be good? All right. Well, I mean, it, it might get you in the hairs of media, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But the other the other question I didn't really get to your remark about Google. I mean, talking about blacklisting. Uh, you know, tools and stuff. You, you, you show oh, the search Google. warrant. I mean, yeah, it's like um, it's a search warrant. It's I'll go back to it if you want. So it's basically so. Basic, essentially, the U.S. government have started sent, or they actually sent them a while ago. We just got told about them. The ones that we know of so far, um, they're search warrants for any um, Google services that we have ever that we've been using ever used. Um, and me, Kristen, who is our spokesperson has one as well. Um, there's some others that have come to other people um, that are connected to Julian. Um, we got them all literally the day before Christmas, so I sort of haven't had that much time to, to do anything with it. Um, but we, it's, I mean, it's definitely to do with that 793G um, number that you can see. These are all like the, the legal um, codes that the warrant is, is made under. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't get how, you know, the US government trying to get data about WikiLeaks, you know, uh, incriminates Google. I mean, did they respond to this warrant or, I mean? And it's sent to Google. So this was the US government okay. sent a request to Google for any information that they had from me, for example, this one's mine. Um, so it wasn't a necessarily, a, it was more a point about the fact that journalists can be subpoenaed rather than specifically Google, although there are many bad points about Google, but I didn't go into any of them here necessarily. <laughs> so you don't know if Google had, you know, replied with information? Uh, they had to comply with information. Yes. They've, okay. they've complied. And in fact, they only had to tell us years later. So this actually has all, like, this was given, I only just found out, but it was, they were giving information. They had a deadline to start giving information oh, thanks. at 2012. So Google have complied. All right, thanks. Very last question from microphone six. Uh, I have a question about your broader definition of whistleblowing, Grace, because uh, I get the feeling that it might be damaging to the term. And um, this is because currently the connotation of whistleblowing is using your right to free speech, which is usually regarded rather highly among the rights that citizens have. And uh, if you expand this definition to uh, any 
form of activism to raise or that is um, used to raise um, I don't know knowledge about the topic or something uh, how would you differentiate or where would you draw the line between whistleblowing uh, according to your definition and vigilante justice I am 100% for vigilante justice, just FYI. Um, just FYI, we have a little kind of, I'm, I'm, that's the punk in me maybe going a little DIY there, but um, I am 100% for if people see an injustice doing whatever they feel they are able to do to bring that forward. Like, like I said before, revolutions are never easy and they're never clean and they're never neat. And the people that are breaking the law are the ones that unfortunately are gonna enact the most change. And I believe that we should support that because laws are not, what's right is not always just and what's just is not always right. Thank you, I guess that's a great closing statement. Thank you so much. Please give it up again for Sarah Harrison and Great North. It was a great talk. Thank you so much. Awesome talk.